We are in a, a, a series, a sermon series uh, on the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, there are five chapters in the book. And the reason we're doing a series on this book is that every one of these five chapters ends with a direct reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so we've titled the sermon series, Waiting Well. How do we wait well till Christ Jesus comes again? 1 Thessalonians was written in 52 AD, approximately. And uh, the Thessalonians had waited for 50 long years amid severe trial and persecution. And Christ hadn't come back yet. They were expecting him to come. And Paul wrote this book, among other reasons, to encourage them to, to wait well. And so the words that Paul wrote in roughly in 52 AD ring loud and true also for all of us today. The church, the bride of Christ, all of us, we have been waiting for over 2,000 years now for Christ to come again. And especially in times like this, when the world is facing a crisis, we do need to learn to wait well. In the midst of this COVID-19 crisis, it is so easy to get uh, discouraged or distracted. And so waiting well is so important in this season. We're in the third week of the sermon series, and we're still on the first chapter of the book. And today we're going to look at, we're looking at verses 7 to 10. Let me read that out for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 to verses, to verse 7 to verse 10. And so, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message ran out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. Verse 9. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. I'd like to focus on, on three verbs in verses 9 and 10. Let me read that for us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Turning, serving, waiting. Let me pray for just a minute. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And even as we come under your word, we pray, Lord, would you move our hearts and draw us to worship Christ Jesus? Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so these are the three things that I'd like to draw for us from this passage. Turning, serving, and waiting. In the first part of this chapter, we saw Paul lay out this gospel trial of faith, love, and hope. 
over the first two weeks, we saw how we receive this gospel pride of faith, love, and hope when we believe in Jesus. And we also saw how we grow in this gospel side, triumph through every suffering or hardship we face. Now, in the second part of this chapter, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this book, is introducing another gospel tribe. We just saw that in verses 9 and 10. Turning, serving, waiting. This is not a new gospel tribe, but this is the same gospel tribe of faith, love, and hope expressed in a different way. Faith corresponds to turning. I'll explain that in just a little bit. Love corresponds to serving. And hope corresponds to waiting. Faith, love, hope corresponding to turning, serving, waiting. That's what we're going to be looking at today. At one level, faith, love, and hope are broad and generic ideas. We all understand and appreciate the meaning of these words. But quite often, we also need a more down-to-earth unpacking of these words. And so in this passage, especially in verses 7 to 10, Paul, in his own brilliant way, is, is making these ideas of faith, hope, and love more real, more practical, and more accessible to us. You know, faith, love, and hope can remain mere nouns in our lives. And, and Paul is trying to teach us how to turn these nouns into verbs. He's trying to teach us to turn these gospel nouns of faith, hope, and love into gospel verbs of turning, serving, and waiting. He's trying to teach us to turn these gospel ideas into gospel actions. And all I want to do this morning in the sermon is to unpack these three gospel verbs. Turning, serving, waiting. Let's start with turning. Look at verse 9. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Imagine this visually with me, please. Imagine this is the idol and imagine this is God. This is the idol and this is God. And we turn away from the idol and we turn to God. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the Thessalonians turned away from idols and turned to God. A turning to God necessarily involves a turning from something else. Think about that. In other words, I haven't really and fully turned to God unless I have also turned away from something else. So there has to be a turning away from something in order for a turning to something to happen. Let me explain this. Thessalonica was a Greek city and they had a multitude of idols that they worshipped. When Paul came and preached the gospel, they turned away from these idols and they turned to Jesus Christ. They, They did not keep both idols and Jesus in their sight. 
they turned away from idols and turned to Christ. Can we say the same is true for us? Have we turned away from our idols and turned to Jesus? Of course, we don't worship physical idols. But there are so many things that our hearts love more than we love Christ. And these are what we call idols. So often, we want to turn to Christ. And so often, we actually believe we have turned to Christ, but we're still not willing to turn away from our idols. We love them too much. And so we try to grow in our faith. Well, if we try to grow in our faith in Jesus, while continuing to enjoy our idols. Are we turning away from our idols? Or are we trying to make the Christian life work by keeping our idols and Jesus Christ in our sight? Putting our faith in God, in Christ Jesus, necessarily involves tearing our faith away from something else. Our hearts are never in a state of vacuum. Love, hope, trust, these things are really, really important to our hearts. Our hearts simply cannot exist without an object of love, hope, and trust. We can never exist as faithless creatures. Nobody lives as faithless creatures. It is impossible. We have to believe in something. We have to trust in something. Careers, money, talents, skill, all good things. If we trust in these things, but these can never be the objects of our ultimate faith, trust, or love. And so if I use the same visual analogy that I used earlier, none of us are just looking straight. None of us are looking at nothing. Not possible. We are either putting our faith, hope, and trust in idols, or we're putting our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ. We cannot exist in, in a vacuum with, with no object of faith, love, and trust. So to unpack this, let me come at this slightly, in a slightly different way by asking us two simple questions. Have you grown in your faith in Jesus Christ this past month? Think about it. Have you grown? And if your answer is yes, please allow me then to ask a follow-up question. What have you taken your faith away from? If you, if you tell me you've grown in your faith in Jesus, tell me what have you grown less in your faith in? What have you turned away from so that you can turn to Christ? What have we taken our faith away from in order to put our faith on Christ? What's your answer? What have you turned away from? You don't have to answer me. But it's so important we answer this question 
for ourselves. Faith involves necessarily both a turning away from something and a turning to Christ. What have we turned away from? What have I turned away from? What have I forsaken? What have I given up? What have I stopped trusting in so that I can trust in Jesus Christ? This idea of turning away from something in order to turn to God is there all through the Bible. Take marriage. The Bible says that when a man and a woman get married, the man will leave his father and mother and cleave with his wife. The man cannot cleave with his wife unless he leaves. So there is a turning there. Or think about the marriage vow. Well, those of us who are already married, I hope you remember uh, your vows. So what happens in a marriage ceremony? Um, the, the pastor who's, who's marrying you, uh, he will ask you the question, do you take so-and-so to be a lawfully wedded wife or husband? And you would say yes. And then you would, this is a follow-up question, generally. And this is what the pastor would say. Do you promise to love her, comfort her, honor and keep her for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health, here comes the important part, and forsaking all others, be faithful only to her for us as long as you both shall live. This is plain and simple. If you don't forsake all other women, you don't get a wife. Or uh, if you don't forsake if you're a woman, if you don't forsake all other men, all other men, you don't get a husband. It's simple. There are no two ways about it. So if you don't turn away from all other, you don't have something. And so it is with Christian faith. We have to turn away from idols in order to turn to Christ. Let me tell you something. All of Christian life is turning. Not just the day we received Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Turning is not a one-time thing. All of Christian life is turning. If I were to pick one word, just one word, to define spiritual growth, I would say that word is turning. Turning away from idols and turning to Christ. Let me put it another way. If we are not turning, we are not growing. If we are not turning, we are not growing. Our careers are a great example to illustrate this. Most of us love our careers, but most of us are also afraid for our careers. I mean, this pandemic, and I hope, I'm sure, has, has made us aware of the fears we have about our jobs and our careers. Now, while we immediately recognize our love of success, we may not immediately see that we also have a fear of failure or a fear of underperforming. And, and when the fear and the love for success becomes so great, so consuming, then our career has become an idol. Now, career in itself is not an idol. It, it's a beautiful gift from God. But when we shut God out, when we shut 
the service of others out. And when we make our careers all about ourselves, our careers have become idle. When the love of success or fear of failure becomes all-consuming, then we've turned God's good and beautiful gift of our careers into an idol. Are you using, are we using our careers to serve Christ? Or are we using Christ to serve our careers? Let me repeat that. Are we using our careers as a way to serve Christ? Or are we using Christ to serve our careers? And so, so in the context of careers, what does turning away from the idol of a career and turning to Christ look like? What does that mean? Does that mean we have to uh, give up our careers, you know, give up our jobs and, and become a pastor? Not at all. What it means is it means turning away from the selfish love and fear for our careers and turning to Christ who enables us to a selfless love of our careers. It just means turning from selfish love of our careers to a selfless love. It means giving up loving Christ for our careers, and it means loving Christ through our careers. It means giving up loving Christ for the sake of our careers. You know, God. I'll love you, I'll obey you, I'll do all the right things, please bless my career. Moving away from that to loving Christ through our careers. And the ultimate turning, those of us who kind of consume our careers, and, and it's a good thing, it's a gift, but just being over-consumed with it is wrong. You can relate what I'm going to say. For those, for, yeah, you can relate what I'm going to say. The ultimate turning is the turning away from our own selves. Because the ultimate idolatry is the idolatry of self. That's why Jesus, in Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. The ultimate turning is when we turn from our own selves when we turn to Christ Jesus. I want to leave us with a very simple question. It should be very helpful to ask ourselves before we go to bed every night. What did I turn away from today? What did I turn away from today? If I haven't turned away from something, I wonder if I really turned to Christ. Just, just one more question. Do you know what you need to turn away from? Is the Holy Spirit whispering to you right now? Is he convicting your heart right now? Do you know what you need to turn away from right now in order to turn to Christ? Do you see the brilliant way in which Paul has made faith, the idea of faith so real and so practical by, by using the idea of turning. He's taken, taken faith in its noun form and he's it's, it's turned that into a verb form by using the word turning. 
So it's a great way to measure on, on faith. I have faith if I've turned. I've grown in faith if I've turned. I haven't grown in faith if I have not turned. Are you turning? Are you growing? That's the first thing I wanted to draw from the passage, turning. The second thing I wanted to draw from the passage is serving. Let's look at that verse again, verse 9 and 10. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. The way Paul has crafted the sentence tells us that, we, that he saw turning and serving as a continuum. He did not see the two as two disconnected actions. He saw turning and serving as one uninterrupted interrupted flow. I know turn and serve are two distinct verbs, but Paul is speaking of both as one smooth action. Turning to God away from an idol will immediately and inevitably lead to serving. It is almost impossible to turn away from an idol to God and not end up serving. If we have indeed turned away from an idol onto Christ, we will end up serving. It need not be a big thing like, like selling your house and giving to the poor, but in small ways. In, in a million small ways, a heart is always alive for opportunity to serve. Because that's what Jesus does to us. And so just as Paul connected faith to turning, he is now connecting love to serving. So we've seen the gospel trends, faith, love, hope, connected to turning, serving, and waiting. If you really think about it, there are only two motives for service, love and fear. Nothing else motivates us to service, love and fear. How many of us feel bored and decide, hey, I'm going to serve because I feel bored? I don't think that happens. You know, when we're bored, we turn to Netflix. We don't turn to service. Think about it. Deep down, there are only two motives for service. We serve that which we love and we serve that which we fear. We serve that which we love and we serve that which we fear. Can you think about any other motive for service? There may be many reasons for service, but beneath all those reasons, there are only two motivations, love and fear. Think about it. If you find a third motive for service that is different from love and fear, please do let me know. Sure, pride can be a motivation to serve. But what is pride except exaggerated self-love? That's what pride is. And Paul is saying here that our love for Christ Jesus will inspire us to serve him by serving people. The love of God inspires us to service, but idols can never motivate us with love. They can only motivate us with fear. Only God can motivate us with love. Idols always use fear to motivate you. Quite often, we assume uh, what we assume is love may actually be fear. Let me give a, a, a real example to, to illustrate this. Let's take our careers again. I'm sure all of us start off uh, our careers loving our jobs, 
and we use, use the skills God has given us and we do a great job with whatever is the first project we are handed that is handed down to us on our first job. We do a great job. Everybody appreciates us and we are thrilled. We love our job. We love our careers and we are, and, and we are ready and raring uh, for the next project to come. And the next project comes. Now tell me, is there only love or is there also going to be fear? Haven't we all felt this fear? What if I don't do this project well? What if I don't deliver? What if I don't finish it in time? What if I don't clinch the deal? What if I can't fix this bug? What if I don't meet the sales target? What if the presentation does not go well? What if my plan is not approved but is torn apart instead? Those fears are very real, aren't they? And at this stage, it becomes hard to tell how much of what is motivating us is love for our job and how much of what is motivating us is fear of failure. And love and fear all get so mixed up in our heart. The more successful we become, the more we fear failure. True, isn't it? There is just too much at stake. And this, and here's a very helpful test to determine if our careers or, or anything else uh, remains a godly vehicle for worship or if they've become idols. Yes, 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 a very helpful test. Look into your heart. Look into your motives. And, and from within your motives, try and separate fear and love. Where there is fear, there's always idolatry. Where there is love, there's worship and service. Now, like the example that we saw, the example of one project to another, Idolatry may start with love. It, it may even seem like love, but ultimately, idolatry is always driven by fear. We're afraid that that which we desire more than Christ, we won't get it. And that fear begins to shape us. But true service and worship is always inspired. If you're doing anything in your life right now out of fear, there is an idol in play. Idols control us through fear, but God frees us to serve through love. That which we love, we will serve. Paul has beautifully connected love to service. Love always overflows into service. And he's shown us how to turn that noun of love into the verb of service, which is by turning away from our idols and turning to Christ. That brings us uh, to the third and the last verb Paul is calling our attention to. Waiting. Waiting. And so just as Paul unpacked the idea of faith with turning, and just as he connected love to serving, he is now connecting hope to waiting. And the theme of this sermon series is waiting well. And, and the key, the key to waiting well is to constantly remember who we're waiting for. It's not what we're waiting for. It's to constantly remember 
who we are waiting for. And this is exactly what Paul is doing in verse 10. He is reminding us who we are waiting for. Look, let me read that verse for us. Verse 10. To wait for his son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming ground. So who are we waiting for? We are waiting for Jesus Christ, the son of God, who God raised from the dead. We are waiting for Jesus Christ, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So how did Jesus rescue us from the coming wrath? There is no more wrath left for us, but those of us who truly believe in Jesus. Because God, the Son, absorbed upon himself the full, just, and furious wrath of God the Father for all of our sins. That's what happened on the cross. We sung that. How deep the Father's love. This love that prompted the Father to give his Son, to send his Son, and to pour out all of his just and holy wrath due for it, all of your sins and mine, to pour it upon Christ Jesus. And so Jesus was punished so we could be forgiven. Jesus was rejected so we could be accepted. Jesus was sentenced so we could be crowned. Jesus was left dead in the tomb so we could have eternal life. And after having suffered all this, the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead is proof that the wrath of God is finished. The sentence for our sins has been served in full. The punishment is over. This is how Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. I want to close with with one last thought. Paul is telling us that the Thessalonians are serving and waiting. How is that possible? How can we serve and wait at the same time? The the two seems contradictory. We can either serve or we can wait. So how can we serve and wait at both at 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 the same time? And I want to close with a story. I, I heard um, the story first told by Tim Keller. The story is about an author. The story is titled The Leaf by Nigel. It's actually a stop, short story that's written by Tolkien. And uh, in a town, there was an artist. And the entire town hired the artist to, to paint a beautiful painting on a big wall. And uh, the artist was very excited. He was gifted. He was talented. And he had in his mind this beautiful picture of a tree that he wanted to paint. And then he began that painting and he painted a leaf. But then he gets stuck. He just is not able to progress. He just just can't paint anything beyond that single solitary leaf. And he struggles with that leaf till he dies. And he dies. And on the day he dies, all that's there on this wall is just a single leaf. The tree, the beautiful tree that he had in his mind didn't go onto the wall. He couldn't complete it. And then in the story, this is a story, he dies and he gets on a train, the train takes him to heaven and he gets off the train, he's come to heaven and uh, the moment he steps off the train, the moment he sets his foot on heaven, the first thing he sees 
is that tree that was there in his mind. Beautiful, perfect, shining, the leaves glistening, the fruits beautiful from that tree. It was just as he had imagined it would be, only it was a million times more glorious. You see, the Christian life is like that. This is the meaning of the word waiting. We toil in this life. We toil. We labor. And it is a joy to do so. But maybe in the light of God's glory, maybe in the light of God's amazing majesty, all that we can do is paint a leaf. And then we paint that leaf, that little leaf that we can barely paint. And then we wait. We wait. And here's the thought that I want to leave you with. Every true and beautiful painting in our life will remain incomplete in this life. Every true and beautiful story will remain incomplete in this life. Every beauty, every longing of your soul, everything, the desire for a good father, for a perfect father, not just a good father, the desire for a perfect husband, for a perfect bride, the desire for a perfect career, all of those good longings, God-given longings, will remain incomplete on this side of eternity. Do not expect full closure and completion in this broken world. No good longing will come to its complete fulfillment in this broken world. Do not expect full closure and completion on this side of eternity. That's what waiting means. Because we wait knowing that perfection lies only on the other side of life. Perfect perfection lies only on the other side of this life. What does this mean for us practically? Two things. Waiting well is all about doing these two things well. First, don't long for completion on this side of eternity. You know, I've been teaching myself this. You know what I long for? I long for a perfect church. And every day I realize the church God's called me to lead is not perfect. And so I'm telling myself, don't long for completion on this side of eternity. Don't long for the perfect church. Learn to live with the mess. Learn to enjoy the mess. Learn to grow in and through the mess. That's what I've been telling myself. You should tell yourself the same. Don't long for the perfect career. Don't long for the perfect marriage. Don't long for the perfect children. Don't long for perfection on this side of it. There is a waiting. That's part of our faith. Waiting is a non-negotiable part of our faith. Waiting for the new heavens and new earth. Waiting for the bridegroom to come is a non-negotiable part of our faith. Second thing I want us to say, practical application. Don't settle for completion on this side of eternity. Some of us make the mistake of longing. Some of us make the mistake actually believing we've achieved it. You know, some of us make the mistake of believing 
Oh, we found the perfect career. Some of you have made the mistake of believing, oh, I finally found the perfect church in the city. Not perfect. Some of you are making the mistake of saying, I found the perfect life partner. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. You, you, you may say, oh, I found the perfect marriage. No, you haven't. Don't settle for completion. Don't, don't, don't be too, as C.S. Lewis would say, don't be too easily pleased. What? All that we can enjoy. And God loves us. God gives us good things to enjoy on this side of eternity. Enjoy those. By all means, celebrate those. Enjoy those. But don't settle for that. Don't, don't think that's everything. We need to learn to wait well. Waiting well is, is, is also saying, hey, this is not the real thing. I'm waiting for the real thing when Christ comes again. And may that be our, our, uh, our joy. May that be our resolve. May that be God's grace to us this morning. Allow me to pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the way in which your word has, has unpacked faith love and hope uh, through these very simple words of turning, serving and waiting. Lord, we pray, give us the grace to wait well. Give us the grace to wait well with our eyes fixed on eternity, not the here and now. Thank you, Lord. Uh, we want to pray especially for those of us um, who are kind of struggling in their relationships, maybe in their families. We pray that you would uh, speak to them, minister to them, and give them grace to wait, Lord, uh, for you to um, make things better on this side of eternity, yes, but for ultimately for the perfection to come later. Thank you, Lord. We worship you. We give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.